That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Pobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Hey, welcome to another episode of that naturopathic podcast. It's raspy, raspy Dr. Dave here with can Michelle. You sing, can you sing smelly cat? Like, like uh, Phoebe Buffay did when she had her sexy raspy voice and then she tried to turn it into like a Parisian coffee shop where she was all. Yeah, I don't know if do sexy, that. I don't know if sexy raspy translates to a uh, boring biological male like me. I don't know. Anyway, we're going to try. We're we'll try. We've got to make something sexy because we're going to talk about some a little nerdier stuff than usual today. Yeah, right? we're nerding out today, but extremely relevant and we'll try to make it uh, tangible. We can't help people. but make it tangible and fun. Oh That's our God. thing, people. Okay, no, it, this is a big one today. It's it's. I said nerdy because we had to we had to hit the hit the journals pretty hard. We hit the Lancet. <clears throat> we hit the journal Blood. Uh, PubMed, uh, some, some PubMed articles and stuff. We got in there. Yeah, and some big journals, right? Come yeah. on, Lancet, Blood, and we're going to talk about Blood. A journal named Blood better be good. Okay, so <laughs> we are talking about um, something that affects a lot of people. I think uh, I just looked at how much how much billing I've got for Life Labs, and uh, it's a lot. And it's a lot of the reason I run so many labs is because of what we're talking about today, which is uh, anemia of chronic disease or the anemia of inflammation, yeah, which still, still, you know, um, boggles us sometimes. Right. Indeed. I feel like I look at iron and well, here's the thing. I'm looking at people's red blood cells. I'm looking at their red blood cell count. I'm looking at their hemoglobin, hematocrit, the size, their, their, their dis the distribution. So the, the variability in the sizing of things. Um, and then of course, once I see that, I want to look at your B12 and your ferritin, which is great if that's even ordered. And a lot of times it's not. And, and, and people will complain about fatigue and weakness and things like that. Um, and then sometimes it requires an even deeper investigation because it something doesn't make sense. So you want to run an iron panel. And there's a lot of times where people I'll see things where a hemoglobin count looks a little bit on the pale side or a little bit on the deficient yeah. side. Now, my optimal range is going to be within what the reference ranges are. I still want to see people. I don't want to wait till you're at a 119 for your hemoglobin to give a shit about the quality of your red blood cells and your iron delivery and oxygen delivery. Yep. Um, so my, my, I have like tighter margins that I would want to see people in. Um, but then as soon as I look at their ferritin and I was like, that doesn't make sense. Or their ferritin's like over a hundred. And I'm kind of like, 
how does that add up to the fact that your hemoglobin is looking completely deficient? So then I start having to wonder about what else could be a causative factor of that. And I think like a lot of what we're going to talk about today can start to put some of those pieces of the puzzle together. Um, and I love some of the things we looked into it. I think I even, I had, I understood some stuff, but this actually started to give me more of the why these yeah. mechanisms are coming up. And it also gave us some really interesting insights about like, iron absorption and the use of iron in the body and defense mechanisms and stuff like your body has these kill switches to regulate your body better. Yeah. It's pretty, nope. the body is so freaking cool. Like it's really mind blowing. Oh, totally. I mean, and understand, maybe you should say that, you know, off the hop, like understanding why your body does something, um, you know, that might be worthwhile to keep that as a sort of North star of understanding all the details. So the bigger picture here is, is that, you know, the anemia of inflammation or the anemia of chronic disease results from a conserved defense strategy of the body directed against invading microbes. I think that's pretty key to keep in mind here. Right. And so, um, yeah, go mm -hmm. on. No, no, no. So, so like, just so people to understand, we were reading, we kind of went down the rabbit hole, this, this whole Iron investigation started with you and I, because you kept bringing up like iron still is perplexing. There's more to the story than we meets the eye. And then there was one day where my sister was seeing her naturopath and her naturopath recommended she take iron supplements every other day because of something called hepcidin. And then my sister's like, did you know about this? And I was like, why does that sound familiar? And then I looked it up and it was true about taking iron every other day because of the influence of hepcidin. We'll get into the details of all of that soon. And I was like, how is this not drilled into our heads more as we learn about iron deficiency? Why is it, why are we doing the exact opposite of what our body actually needs and working with the body rather than like trying to like have the car in park and revving in the engine, expecting to move forward? Like, I feel like we're doing with a lot of resistance when it comes to iron supplementation. Um, and then I remember bringing that up to you and you're already going down the rabbit hole. And then it brought us into this whole idea of anemia of inflammation and that whole premise of the body's defense mechanism about uh, against pathogens is because the inflammatory response when you have in a, your immune system activated, and then that causes this whole cascade of events because of the inflammation from that infection, um, that actually affects in a very strategic way affects how iron and ferritin is absorbed and available for your red blood cells. Mm -hmm. it's wild yeah, but that's how we kind of that's how kind of we got here and i'm glad that like all of these like little bits of the thing like led us to this because this has been a pretty incredible uh eye-opening moment to investigate this further yeah and like we're we're um we're just we're just you know <clears throat> creeping in into the knowledge gaps uh a little more today um one thing i'll say you know because part of that defense strategy that we just talked about is is because the microbes, the majority of microbes, it's not every single microbe, but it's almost every single microbe uses iron as a catalyst for its metabolism. Right? Just like so humans. You, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I mean, I make I make questionable analogies all day at, at the clinic. And one of them is like, it's like gun control. Like, okay, you you're, you need, I, I, I would like the police to have guns. That's okay. I'm okay with the police having guns, but I don't want everyone guns everywhere i think it's a bad it's a bad situation when there's just guns lying around everywhere if if some nice you know for the most part well-to-do policemen have guns it's okay so like your immune system uses iron too you know you need iron but you don't want it everywhere 
and uh, whatever. It's a questionable analogy. I'll probably have more by the time we're done. We're probably going to get hit with some like triggered people from that one, by the way. Probably <laughs> defund the police. Yeah. Anyway. Regardless, um, it does it, but I think like the thing is, you get what I'm not, saying, kind of like, yeah, does it but kind like, of I, iron sense? Is, you can iron tell is, me if it doesn't. I, I, don't, I don't know if it 100% makes sense to me, but all I know is that as, as humans, but you're right, we need a, we need a certain amount, we don't need it in excess. But I think yes. that goes to that goes for anything, like anything in excess is usually like Sun, a little bit of water, a burden on the salt, body, right? Everything. Yes, so but just like we as organic living species need iron so do microbes and most pathogens they also require it as part of their of their ability to create energy and function and that is also where um for my practice with a lot of microbial burdens and parasites and stuff and i think i've mentioned this before on our previous podcast talking about parasites and stuff is that, you know, these guys feed off of iron in your body. So if you also, and also people who have heavy metal burdens, like that often attracts more of these parasites and an excessive amount of iron will keep your body in a more of a holding pattern from a microbial perspective, but they'll also like destroy your red blood cells and rob you of it too. So I don't like to supplement with iron if I'm trying to get rid of pathogens for people. And I've always inherently known that, but now this deep dive into the research further confirms that for me because it now gives me like the nerdy science background behind it all, which is kind of great. The other reason I use the gun analogy just to beat it to death a little bit more is that free <laughs> iron is toxic. Yeah. It, this is very important. And I don't think it's talked about enough. You do not want free iron lying around. It is toxic. Yeah. It'll cause free radical damage. It's very bad. That's why as soon as we get iron, we, we slam it into like storage with ferritin or we slam it into storage with transferrin. So where it's bound up and it won't cause a bunch of crime. Right. Or it's stored inside those macrophages so that it's contained until it's released for proper use. So, um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, just on that note with the macrophages, it's a big part of our immune system. Those things like gobble things up. And what Dave and I found out through this article was that 90% of 90% of your iron needs, basically. your iron needs actually is coming from the recycling of ferritin from senescent erythro erythrocytes. So basically like old and dying red blood cells, your macrophages literally engulf them and take in that ferritin and then basically wait for the rate for a signal to release it again for the next for, for erythropoiesis uh, uh, where red blood cells are being produced and they release that ferritin for, or the iron to be available for the next phase of red blood cell production. And I found that to be fascinating. So again, going to show that an excessive ingestion of iron doesn't really support that because 90% is already in house. So we shouldn't be ingesting obscene amounts to try to supplement. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, it kind of comes back to what I'm saying is free iron is toxic. Yeah. We have no, we have no way of getting, we, this is very important too. We have no way of getting rid of iron. Mm. There's no like exit route. That's why the body is super tight on letting more in. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's hard to supplement. That's why a lot of people have resistant to supplementation, iron deficiency. Right. And, uh, and that sort of ties into what you're saying with 90% of it, just sort of being 
reused in-house yeah because it's hard to get more in and we're tight we're tightly controlling iron and i mean uh, there's a lot of different controls here with iron but it's probably a good time to talk maybe a little bit about hepcidin do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about hepcidin as the what they call the master controller of iron levels Sure. So, um, is it hepcidin? Hepcidin? I don't no, know. I, Let's go with say, different emphasis. I, That's I, I love when you say emphasis. <laughs> so, uh, hepcidin is this regulatory marker that actually helps control the homeostasis of iron, essentially. And um, it is lower. Uh, how, how do I say this? Uh, when there's an excessive amount of iron, hepcidin will actually be released to then stop macrophages from making iron available um, in the bloodstream. So then, they, so they stop the, they stop the release of it from macrophages, but it also inhibits the absorption intestinally from your enterocytes. It's actually pretty interesting. So this is a really important protein or a molecule that helps to like regulate our iron um in house and then when your iron levels um are low hepcidin um hepcidin production or release is reduced in order to allow for better absorption and circulation of iron for the needs of our red blood cells did i say that correctly yeah yeah it's it's um i'll just i'll just expand on it i think yeah. what you said is, is correct it's it um the way it works is it stops the uh, de- um the iron exporter the cellular iron exporter ferroportin it basically stops that so ferroportin is there and we're not even going to talk about that in detail but ferroportin is something that exports the iron from the cell from intracellular to out mm-hmm. so what hepcidin does is stop that so it makes it stuck in the cell and therefore probably the why the ferritin goes up because you're going right. to have to attach it to something so it, so it does this going in the up. It does this in the duodenum where that ferroportin is needed to deliver iron from the intestinal tract into the circulation. And then it also does this on the macrophages to block the release of iron that was otherwise collected from like those old dying red blood cells. So that's our safety switch. That's our internal homeostasis switch to make sure that there's only enough iron being released based on our current needs. Yeah. And look at the word origin. HEP means it's from the liver, hepatal, yeah. and sidin is because it's antimicrobial in its overall, uh, its overall goal is remember same thing we were saying is to to decrease the plasma uh, amount of iron to decrease mm-hmm. the amount of guns given to bad bacteria microbes. Right. Okay. Now I see where your analogy is starting to come. It's starting to it's oh, starting to hit God. home a little bit. Thank God. So oh. the interesting thing is that. When there's so there's going back to the whole iron of inflammation situation, um, in inf, like systemic inflammation, it will affect the the iron trafficking um, because of its effect on hepcidin. So it's been shown that like certain types of cytokines, like interleukin six. Um, will then stimulate your liver cells to produce more hepcidin under inflammatory situations. Yes. So so this is where chronic inflammation and the release of these specific types of cytokines and other interleukins and activin B and all these different things will then stimulate the production of hepcidin, which then yes. has a down regulatory effect on the release of iron. So it reduces 
the circulation of iron because it reduces its release from the macrophages and from the duodenum based on its reaction on ferroportin. You're so this is, this. I'm getting better at starting to yeah. like speak about the, 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 what's well, complicated the balance. Yeah. It does get complicated. I hope everybody's following with us. So interleukin six, uh, that, that brings up just, you know, clinically relevant test would be CRP, C-reactive protein, which is an interleukin-6 dependent inflammatory marker, which costs about three bucks. (laughs) And it's something I use every time because this and, but other things that make it go up, uh, you know, I'm not going to talk about another, uh, another cytokine, but there is something I think is really relevant. uh, And it's relevant for a case that I'm seeing too, of uh, anemia of chronic disease, lipopolysaccharide or LPS mm. is also a potent in- inducer of hepcidin in the liver. So I've got a guy who I'm, I'm suspecting there's some really weird kind of uh, microbial bacterial, I don't know who all is involved um, thing going on. And uh, yeah, LPS from the breakdown of those bacteria will uh, potently induce hepcidin or hepcidin. Why do I say that? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Um, well, there was a few other things like they did talk about. Um, so aside from hepcidin though, there was something where I like the restriction of iron is going to be done from this hepcidin production because it restricts the release of iron. But interestingly enough, also tumor necrosis factor will reduce duodenal iron absorption. Um, it's not well characterized yet, but it's a hepcidin independent mechanism that will still allow for the restriction of iron release. So it'll have an effect that's hepcidin like, I guess, but it doesn't, it's not through hepcidin that it, it, it engages this type of thing, which I found interesting. So we have like, um, yeah, especially in wasting. Wasting yeah. or like elderly or cancer, you have to think yeah. of TNF and those, yeah. those, because cancer is another one that's traditionally, or has been known for a long time to be one of those things where you do get this anemia of chronic disease and cancer. And I, I think that maybe makes your point about TNF yeah. relevant because that does cause that wasting cachexia or ca- cachexia. I, Cache- I don't cachexia, I think. Cachexia. I don't even know. Yeah. I'm not so- going to try anymore. So what, so just to go back to the whole macrophages, once iron is acquired by a macrophage, that is what's mainly stored in ferritin. So when we test ferritin, that's what that's coming from. So an interesting thing is, is I just want to touch on this really quickly is that when it comes to, um, anemia of inflammation, um, there are some, it's a little bit different from like, say, quote unquote, traditional iron deficiency anemia, because in the anemia of inflammation, your ferritin levels uh, might actually be elevated. But yeah. in a true iron deficiency anemia, your ferritin levels should actually be on the lower side. So that was one way to differentiate going back to you where you were talking about lab work where ferritin might actually be a very good uh, differentiating factor between between these things. Um, if your ferritin levels are like normal to high <laughs> and your hemoglobin levels are like low and something's not adding up, it might be because it's uh, an inflammatory thing. And I know in the naturopathic community, we often see uh, high ferritin levels as a marker of inflammation. And we've always kind of known this, but this now actually like really paints a bigger picture as to why. Yeah. And it helps me understand that better now. It still is the most important differentiate, differentiating parameter in terms of assessment by labs, ferritin. Yeah. But um, I, yeah, we need we need more than ferritin to do a, a really good assessment, I think. But yeah, it's yeah. the most important thing. Yeah. 
I believe they said over a hundred, um, the level being over a hundred, which is, which is, you know, not pathologically high. That's why some of this stuff is clear as mud. You know, it's not pathologically high, but in the context of other signs and symptoms yeah. and weird stuff with anemia or, or hemoglobin. Yeah. 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 So when it comes to like this inflammation, uh, anemia of inflammation, one was the iron restriction specifically, which is like the hepcidin and those inflammatory markers reducing the availability of iron. But then another one was the inflammatory suppression of erythropoietic activity. So the, the inflammatory suppression of like red blood cell production. And that was another thing that was really interesting from these articles. Dave, do you want to speak on that since you put me on this hot spot for hepcidin? Yeah, well, that's, I find that the, the dip, most difficult part to to work out and and understand. That's why I threw so it to you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, partner. No, it's um, yeah. So you have enough iron, like you have enough iron when you have high ferritin or or whatever. It's kind of like you've got all these this. You've got the actual hardware of iron there. You're just kind of hiding it, storing it away. It's weird to me that the the uh, red blood cells to be in the marrow, the bone marrow, are not making the order. They're yeah. not saying, "Hey, you got? Can you send us by Amazon some of that, uh, some of that iron you got?" Yeah. There's no orders being made. They're like asleep. They're too, you know, they're dazed and confused or whatever, and they're not making orders for iron. So it's it's really confusing. I find that to be one of the more difficult parts. It sounds like, uh, yes, there is some influence of hepcidin on on that those whole processes but what it comes down to is a lot of time the inflammation that's going on the inflammatory background inflammatory processes are key in all of this and i should yeah. we should probably highlight that a bit now it seems like a natural time to to bring it up background inflammation is sort of the the thing that's fueling the fire here and it's really hard to treat inflammation because you don't know because inflammation is a part of every sort of yeah uh disequilibrated <laughs> person with chronic disease who ends up in our office right like you've got dementia you've got inflammation if you've got anxiety there's probably some inflammation you've got insomnia there's more inflammation if you've got osteoarthritis there's inflammation if you have anything there's usually some you know dysregulated inflammation so that's what makes the anemia of inflammation or the anemia of chronic disease really hard and that's why it's hard to treat those the bone marrow precursors of red blood cells because sometimes you you have to find a way to treat that inflammation and there's lots of different ways to do that, but they're, they're difficult to figure out. In the article, they were really like, this is the most frequent anemia in either hospitalized or chronically ill patients, more traditionally things that have a prolonged immune activation, like infections, autoimmune diseases, and cancers. But more recently, they were linking it to chronic kidney diseases, congestive heart failure, chronic pulmonary disease, obesity. Guys, that's why, you know, the last three years is a bit of a shit show because people are metabolically unhealthy. Chronic liver disease and advanced atherosclerosis. Now, and immune-mediated diseases. But this is the thing, Dave, is you said something really key. This article is basing it on overt diseases, but- when you and I see people in clinic, there is a low grade level of inflammation in so many people. And people come into my office and they're like, I feel okay. And they're like, I just feel a little bit tired. I feel a little bit this, I feel a little bit this. And then we run these things and they have all these stealth infections that they have no idea about. And their body's just been compensating for them in whatever way it needed to keep them alive. But a lot of people are walking around 
with inflammation and they've just kind of probably accepted a new level of normal of living and not realizing that there's a better, there's, there's a higher potential for them. Right. And I think that this should go beyond just thinking about, Oh, if I don't have congestive heart failure, I'm not in an inflammatory state. Please don't, please don't fall into that trap. (laughs) Yeah. So this makes me think more broad, broad picture for a lot of people that we just see that don't have a quote unquote disease. Well, would would you would you say that most people who end up in a naturopath's office have probably <laughs> been like I'm not saying all of them, but like most are chronic disease or chronically not getting answers, and and I would say um, a a great proportion of those people with you know fatigue, weakness, a little bit of moods down, just not feeling good, have anemia of inflammation or the anemia of chronic disease or they just have inflammation and whether or not it's on a full-on anemia level but like yes but they will i think if they if they continue yeah like they're in and and maybe i'll bring this up i don't know how you look at um inflammatory markers michelle but personally when when i run um labs i do esr which is really old test like super old test but still good and i run crp Mm -hmm. on everyone because I can't look at the ferritin and make any reliable conclusions about ferritin unless I have those juxtaposed yeah. uh, inflammatory numbers. I do run them more so, frequently now. Okay. So the, so the numbers I use, and this is, you know, I'm not telling everyone what to do. I'll just tell you what I do. And it, it seems to work most of the time for me is if I see ESR even above like five, six, seven millimeters per hour. Yeah. There's usually a correlation with CRP. And CRP being a little bit more, maybe a little bit more precise or specific evaluation. Um, in most cases, they'll coincide with some CRP at about at least 0. 0.7, 0.8, maybe one. Um, what I forget the units. So, so, and I look at the the range of them, and ESR is two to thirty millimeters per hour, which is absolutely crazy high, insane. Yeah. If you're looking at chronic disease, I, I'd be looking at ESR and get it done by your doctor or your naturopath if you can. Um, five, six, seven millimeters per hour, you're already getting into the range of sticky blood, yeah, um, which is due to sort of non-specific causes of inflammation. Yeah. Sometimes it correlates with, uh, sometimes it does not correlate with CRP. No. Uh, but most of the times I would say it it does, you'll see them go up and I'd be looking for a CRP, let's just say one or below, below one. Those right. would be so, my sort of natural date, Dr. Dave, whatever I do, yeah. that's my ranges. I would say you? my, my optimal range is two to five for ESR and w- below one for CRP. Yeah. Okay, so for, 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 for medical, it's under five. They say it's a, a CRP is acceptable to be under five where I'm like, no, 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 I want you under yeah. one. And then like you said, the ESR goes up to 30 and I'm like, that's, that's too much. That's yeah. too much. So uh, five is how I have understood through my extra continuing education learnings. Um, so yes, I concur with you on that one. Okay. And then, and, and just back to your point about how a lot of people in today's world are not proactive about their health. 
So we don't typically see a doctor until it's hit an extreme breaking point. By, by that point, it's been snowballing and snowballing and snowballing. Yeah. So in from, from that standpoint, I think most people's conditions are chronic. The only thing that really is an acute condition is if you've had an acute injury or, you know, like you, there was an acute trauma to something or, you know what I mean? Like, and, and emergency situations or acute care situations. But even then you have, you have a heart attack. There's probably been a slow burn leading up to that heart attack. Yeah. The, the the emergency situation takes care of the immediate needs, but it, it's you still need to address the chronic development of why that came to be in the first place. And I think we've been a little bit blindsided or or not blindsided, but I think we've kind of uh, not been properly educated as a society that uh, a disease doesn't like pop out of nowhere unless it's like an acute infection or you like broke your ankle. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I, I no, would I would say most most modern day about. issues are chronic chronic developed slow burn issues. They're not just things that came out of nowhere. Well, even even applies to the sort of osteopathic idea of the pre existing state, the pre lesional state. So when I say I bend over and tie my shoe up and I put my back out, which has happened, it's so bloody embarrassing. But I mean, should I not be able to bend over and put my shoe on, like without you know? busting up my back what yeah. was the condition what were the conditions structurally that pre-existed and made me so damn susceptible to such a slight stressor causing things that's the pre-lesional state they talk about and i i think we have a similar thing as naturopaths on a uh on the you know a bigger sort of naturopathic perspective why why were things sort of you know just set up for failure and and um why did you get sick it's not just you know it's not just the bug Mm -hmm. you, you know, maybe you weren't sleeping, maybe you're low on iron, whatever, whatever. Yeah. <coughs> Bless you. Sorry for the cough and raspy. Smelly cat, smelly cat. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I concur. Okay. I just, I, uh, but, I, but, but anyways, I feel like even though this article and the research papers were dealing with more aggressive chronic diseases. I think that this is applicable to most people's low grade suffering in this world and accepting just mediocre vitality as their level of normal um, until it falls apart enough to, for them to want to do something that's still chronic. Right. And I think a lot of inflammation is an underlying component to why people feel the way they do in chronic society and like in modern society, I'm just going to point, point blank, put that out there. And I don't think, like I said, you don't have to have pulmonary disease in order to be considered a chronic inflamed condition. So I, th I think I was trying to say that at some point and you said it better. So thank you. Oh man, it's um, all good. That's why we're a team. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but the thing is, is back to the whole iron stuff is that, um, a second pathogenic factor for this auto anemia of inflammation is iron and hepcidin independent impairment of erythropoiesis. So there's a reduced production and or reduced biological activity of the hormone EPO in an inflammatory setting. Yeah, it, it gets a little screwy on that side. That's why I sort of yeah. ran away from the, from the erythros erythrocyte side of things. And then you can also get decreased um, EPO receptor. Yeah. <laughs> so it inflammatory gets, it, driven. It gets weird, right? It's like, yeah. why you, you'd think, okay, why would you also stop the production? 
it just shows how dysregulating chronic inflammation is. Yeah. Like the signals are off. You got the iron and you don't have enough red blood cells, but your body says, stop making red blood cells with iron. It's just, it's a bit screwy. And that's why I, I'd say most, you know, most of the patients I work, work with, we do this evaluation. There are some of them that it gets, it gets, I'm just, I'm very honest about, you know, not knowing everything with my patients. And I, I say, sometimes it's, it's a bit clear as mud and yeah. Uh, yeah, that it's because there's some screwy signals going on. Yeah. So not only does it like stop the production, there's also various inflammatory meteors can directly target erythroid cells and induce apoptosis. So cellular death. Yeah. So the thing is, is like, here's the, here's the thing is your body's always trying to keep you alive. But when it's under chronic state of something and constantly spinning plates, spinning plates, spinning plates, it's going to drop some plates eventually. Um, and some of these safety mechanisms might be good in acute situations for maybe reasons we don't yet understand. But when you have chronic situation, it now becomes detrimental. That's key. There you go. That's very, very key. This is probably a short-term solution yeah. that gets perpetuated. Just like Short-term, stress. it makes a lot of sense. Just like our cortisol response and our stress response, short-term stress, fine. Long-term stress, not so bueno. Not, no, no, right? exactly. So I think this is where things begin to fall apart. It's the chronic component that that is the concern here. It's not inflammation. Inflammation is a necessary, a necessary response to infections and injuries and things like that. It's the chronic. That's the problem. Yeah. So, and that just, you know, so I just, uh, I think that's what I want to uh, and then the other, the third component to this is there's a decreased erythrocyte erythrocyte survival. So shortened erythrocyte lifespan has also been documented in an inflammatory setting. So not only are you blunting the production, some things will actually kill the cells, but also the life. Like, so again, with the apoptosis, the lifespan is also shorter when it comes to your red blood cell during an inflammatory um, in a chronic inflammatory setting, which is super interesting. Um, practical so there's note related to that. I just want to, I want to support that with a practical note I've noticed in lab patterns. Yeah. If you see someone with a really low HbA1c that seems to not match, like they, you know, they're fairly normal or they eat sweets and stuff once in a while, or mm. maybe they have insulin issues. If their HbA1c is way lower than you think it should be like 4.8 or, yeah. or whatever, that's because the red blood cells they're not as glycosylated because remember the glycosylation index of HbA1c is dependent on an assumption of three months of survival of the red blood cell. That's so, true. yeah. So if they don't last very long, they don't get as glycosylated. It's a good little clinical tip. Look for low HbA1c. Had, I had a client who had very interesting low fasting glucose low fasting hemoglobin A1C. When I referred to my, our colleagues, they're like, I don't think that's a big problem. If it was high, it'd be more of a problem. But now, but I was like, something didn't seem right about that for me. Yeah. And Your even her blunted, right. and her blunted, she had a weird response to insulin as well. And I was like, it was really blunted. Everything was like, well, and I haven't quite figured it out. And I wonder if there's something in this world that's affecting that too. Then I have to investigate that further. It was really, wild. I know two people in my family who have issues with the longevity of their RBCs and they both have extremely low uh, HbA1c. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yep. You know, there's. I just was gonna say some one of the one of the things that we learned 
uh, in reading, I believe it was in the paper in the, the journal blood yeah. was about uh, vitamin D. And I want to give you the, I want to give you the, the thunder. You can have the thunder on vitamin D. Yeah. Cause it's a special day for me. Um, so as if you didn't have another reason, like you needed another reason to love vitamin D. I know. So the interesting case, so this, this comes from the whole idea of like, how do you begin to diagnose things? And that's where a thorough workup and uh, blood testing is and not just checking your standard iron stuff. You want to also check your renal function. You want to check your liver function test. You want to check your thyroid um, or any kind of markers of hemolysis, but you, uh, and your folic acid, your cobalamin, but you also want to check your vitamin D because it's a negative regulator of hepcidin expression. So cool. So elderly subjects with, with, uh, they found that elderly subjects with different causes of anemia were often found to suffer from vitamin D deficiency and anemia could be corrected in part by improving their vitamin D status, which then decreases your hepcidin level, which then again, lower hepcidin allows for more of a release of ferritin to be available for your red blood cells. So just to draw that line for people. I was like, that's so awesome. It really is, you know, from a real, so I'm always like thinking practical clinical setting. Yeah. You know what else is nice about it? Cause there, I don't know if you've had this Michelle, but there's probably times when you're like, because you can have anemia of chronic disease and you can also have actual iron deficiency anemia. They can, they can both coexist. We didn't really talk about that yet. And it's important because that, that adds another further, like, what the hell do I do? Yeah. This what, what you just talked about there at vitamin D is it adds a really safe first step to make sure that someone is replete in vitamin D before yeah. you have to give more iron. Cause I think the odd person with the anemia of chronic disease, you might have to give them iron because they also have a coexisting iron deficiency. It gets confusing. Yeah. But what's nice. Vitamin D's safety profile is pretty amazing. So you can yeah. start with that or yeah. at least an assessment of it. When I read that in the article, Uh, And I was sharing this with you, Dave, my brain obviously immediately went to the gallbladder and bile, because as we talked about in my bile episode and my gallbladder episode is that you need good quality bile, the proper flow of bile for you to metabolize and absorb your fat soluble vitamins like vitamin D for God's sakes. So Um, this makes me wonder and go back to the whole idea too, that, uh, women tend to be more prone to poor bile flow and gallstones and sluggish bile because of the effects of estrogen. Um, and that might be a contributing factor to why maybe anemia is a little bit higher in women. In addition to the fact that we lose blood every month, like let's be real there, there's that as well. Um, but interestingly in this article, they also had this really cool chart in here and we'll attach the link of the article in our notes, um, the show notes that if people want to go ahead and read it and nerd out on this, um, it'll be really interesting, but modifiers of the severity of anemia of inflammation hormones are one of them. So your estrogens and testosterones are actually, affect hepcidin regulation. So I wonder if the estrogen also has an additive effect on that. I didn't go down the rabbit hole of how estrogen affects hepcidin. Um, but I'm curious if there's a twofold factor or threefold factor for women to have more anemic type symptoms. One, estrogen is an effect on hepcidin. Two, the fact that we have blood loss every month, but three, we're more prone to gallstones and poor bile, and that might affect vitamin D and then it's interaction with ferritin and red blood cell production and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. that might be why it's more common in, in females, iron deficiency in general. Yeah. Interesting possibilities there for sure. Yeah. 
just curious. I'll have to look into the, some of those, some of my hypotheses there a little bit further. Um, but that's where my brain went when I read that about the vitamin D. I thought that was super interesting. And, and when you look into it, look, see, see if testosterone does something antagonistic or, or the opposite of estrogen. That'd be interesting because I know testosterone mm-hmm. um, is, is supportive for hematopoiesis too. Yeah. So that'd, that'd be interesting. But uh, um, just just really quickly, as I'm looking in this, obesity as a modifier of the severity of anemia of inflammation will have increased will have increased hepcidin levels. So your cellular and dietary iron retention uh, retention will be affected because obesity also obesity also just naturally increases your inflammation, which then perpetuates things and, and estrogen. estrogen. And then it also will have a, it also directly, I guess, increases hepcidin levels as well. Yeah. So another reason to start like being, being mindful of like, and not in a, not in a weird numbers on a scale way, but like create, get metabolically healthy. Don't just get skinny, get metabolically healthy people, regulate your circadian rhythms, eat real food, get sunshine, drink water, move your body, (laughs) learn to detox effectively, poop every day. (laughs) So it's a good start. It's a good start. And stop eating so much sugar. <laughs> I thought Anyways, was, yeah. was really interesting too, is that, um, you know, we, I did, a, I did a presentation, uh, like just a PowerPoint or something that I put on YouTube called hemoglobin is, isn't enough or hemoglobin mm-hmm. is not enough. And, um, the, one of the, one of the interesting take-homes of it was, you know, iron is not just for hemoglobin. It's not just for red blood cells. We talked a lot today about red blood cells and hemoglobin, and and that's super important. It's, you know, if you don't have oxygen, you you know, to tissues, you're in, you're in trouble. So it's, it's very, very important, but iron does so many, I I believe it was like 187, at least reactions that we know of that iron's important for. And so, uh, one of the things that I read in the, the, uh, the journal, uh, blood was that, the red blood cells will actually, <clears throat> they'll decrease the synthesis of heme and hemoglobin, um, inhibit, inhibiting erythropoiesis to protect non-red blood cell tissues from iron deficiency. Mm-hmm. It's very important. You know, you've got other tissues just gagging for iron too, right? So um, that's that's part of what's going on with the anemia of chronic disease is, okay, they stop building more red blood cells so that the little iron that they have available or that is available for use is also used in other tissues. And that's, again, that's your body's compensating for you under a a level of stress. And again, short-term, fantastic. Chronic, this starts to become a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But like, like how brilliant is the body? It's got these like, it's got these like default mechanisms in to keep you alive in some way. And it's always working on your behalf. And I really want to remind our audience that your body's always trying to keep you alive. And as irritating as your symptoms are, your body is still working on your behalf. The reason is you have to start to understand the why. So that's why we wanted to have this conversation about the inflammation side of things. It's that chronic inflammation, those chronic things that are lurking in the background that are keeping your body in this constant state of having to compensate and compromise on your behalf. And that leads to eventually that can lead to disease when, cause your body can only take so much of that. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. It's, it's super interesting. So, you know, if your labs are showing this, you know, you've got low iron, you've got 
maybe low red blood cells, low hemoglobin, or they're kind of low-ish and you feel mm-hmm. like crap. <clears throat> and then you're lucky enough to, to have a doctor that runs at least ferritin. Mm-hmm. then the ferritin comes back and it's quite high. So meaning you've got lots of stores of iron, but you're not making red blood cells. You got to be thinking about anemia of inflammation Yeah, and you need to be worked up properly because if you don't sort that out, then um, it, 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 you're going to have a tough time feeling better. I find so many people feel better when you sort this out to the best of your abilities. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, is like when it comes to treatment strategies, just kind of going into that is like, you can't just give an iron pill. You have to find no. out why. So like working in digestive health, I'm like, is their stomach acid okay? Are they taking proton pump inhibitors? Is there stealth infections that's never been investigated? Are they riddled with parasites? Like, are their hormones okay? Is their thyroid okay? You know, like now I'm going to be like, is their vitamin D okay? Do they have to, now I'm looking on the inflammatory side of things on top of that. So you have to treat the underlying condition that's causing it. And a lot of people I think have chronic gut inflammation, which is then possibly going to affect or create a leaky gut scenario, affect absorption capabilities for more than one nutrient, regardless of whether iron's in there or not, but iron's already tough to absorb. And a lot of people are chronically stressed and worry, which then weakens the heart. I mean, sorry, weakens the stomach and then you don't make stomach acid and then like so on and so on and so on. So we have to think more big picture and, you know, yes, like celiac disease and uh, Crohn's and not colitis, but Crohn's more because I iron is absorbed in the small intestines, things like that need to be ruled out. It's not just, here's a pill, right? So you have to be able to do that. There's been also some things to show that, um, ascorbic acid, obviously like vitamin C's will improve iron absorption, but also overnight fasting can improve yeah, the bioavailability of iron as well. But I think the other thing that's been really important to know is that when you do an oral dose of iron, And this was the one thing that I was like, why are we not taught this more regimentedly? So um, a lot of experts, like a lot of medical experts will recommend a dose of 150 to 200 milligrams of elemental iron per day. And sometimes ask people to split the dose because it can be constipating. So sometimes they say, divide the dose. So it's easier on your system. But studies actually more recently are suggesting that this is not optimal because when you start to, um, iron is, from high doses, the absorption of it is not very good. And any unabsorbed iron that's left in the gut will be an irritant to the gut lining, will cause exactly. in, will cause inflammation, will cause dysbiosis. And then if we're causing inflammation, dysbiosis, we're again, putting her back in this perpetual state of inflammatory response and poor absorption yep. on gut level. And then we're adding into this anemia of inflammation as well, right? So um, studies have actually shown that Hepcidin, um, after an oral iron dose of 60 milligrams, um, once a day, first thing in the morning, um, will stimulate an acute increase in hepcidin that could still persist 24 hours after that dose, but will subside by 48 hours. So in actuality, the ideal dosage of oral iron is every other day at w- once a day, not more than once a day. Um, just, just to be clear. Cause like, I don't think nobody talks about that. <laughs> Everyone's like, you're iron every day. And I was in the habit yeah. of being like, well, you're not absorbing it. Let's try to do divided doses. And that was probably the worst thing I could have done for my clients. And I'll admit that now that I know this, I'm changing my game. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's a real good take home. And, and that's why sometimes the details do matter. And you can say, okay, we took some time to talk about hepcidin. Well, here's why, because 
now you know if you, if you take hepcid or if you take iron too frequently, hepcidin just says no, no mate, not 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 happening. So you yeah, this changes everything for me with iron. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple things learned from this is definitely the I had it as an option all the time. Is do you want to do it every other day? Mm-hmm. Actually, what I do with people is Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So at least it's more structured. That's true. Yeah. Um, with you know the average person's day, sort of depending on the day of the week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday makes makes sense now that we know that hepcidin is is sort of the the one uh, responsible for a lot of the issues with frequent iron absorption. And again, yeah, think back to the big picture. Why? Well, hepcidin is yeah. trying to help us. We don't want too much iron. We'd have no way of getting rid of it. And free iron is toxic. So yeah. it kind of makes sense with the big picture. Just have to be yeah. patient. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so there was a Lancet article about that. And then there was also a PubMed article. And we can always put the PMID and stuff in there. Um, but it also recommends that a single morning dose of 60 to 120 milligrams of iron of, of a ferrous salt. Now, naturopaths, we often use slightly different versions of iron. We'll use like a, a, a iron bisglycinate or something like that, but it does recommend to take it with ascorbic acid as well on alternating days. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah. Well, did you get everything you want to get out about the anemia of Crohn's disease? I think so. I think so. I thought, anyways, like, oh, then no, there was a really cool thing. Sorry, I just want to mention one more thing. There was, because bacteria will feed off of pathogens, will feed off of iron like we do. I found that this was a really interesting point. And even though it's not maybe like nothing relevant to where we are today, but could be, um, Caution is suggested by studies indicating, this is from the article, in environments with a high endemic burden of infectious diseases, a mild anemia and or iron deficiency can actually be beneficial because because it reduces the amount of iron that's available for then the infection. And then they found that uh, iron fortification actually resulted in increased morbidity and mortality from serious infections, including malaria and enteric infections in certain areas. And I was like, that's a trip. So I read it it, and I thought it was really interesting too. Yeah. And I just, I just wanted to share that for our nerdy NDs out there that that's a, again, the body is like, there's, there's certain situations where that anemia is actually beneficial. Yeah, I have um, I have other guesses about why hemochromatosis exists too, but I won't I won't bore people with that. Um, I'll talk about it another time, maybe. Yeah, but let's do that. I learned a lot uh, about something that I'm constantly learning, like every day, from my patients a little bit better. And uh, <laughs> I'm sorry for coughing, sorry for the raspiness, but I hope you got a couple of good take homes. Um, from this, whether you're a, a patient or a practitioner, um, and the vitamin D, the, the vitamin C to increase the every other day dosing, there's some practical stuff here. And uh, it was fun nerding out. And thanks for listening. Peace.